1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have read your word, we now ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we might understand and apply it. We ask that you'd be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A prominent theologian of the 20th century once made the statement that the most vital concept to grasp of the entire New Testament is conveyed by the single original Greek word, hooper. It means on behalf of. It means in the place of or for the sake of. It's actually found in our text. If we go back to the opening few verses, we find it in verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. The word for is that word hooper, and it means on behalf of. That's the message. Christ, His death, was for us. A technical term would be vicarious. It was in the place of us. Another word would be substitutionary. We understand the word substitute. It's used even in sports where people on the bench are the subs, the substitutes, and when people are on the field and they are no longer wanted by the coach to be on the field, off they come and in their place a substitute emerges, substitution, vicarious, a death that was for us. To speak of Christ dying for us, we must 
understand this. What did he die for? And specifically, we're told Christ died for our sins. We then must understand what sin is. As we understand it as a concept, it is cosmic treason. Every sin deserves death. Every sin is an unspeakable rebellion. That's hard to say in today's world, but that's the reality as we understand our Bibles. To understand the amazing good news, we must first understand the dreadful bad news. If we think that sin is someone else's issue, we haven't grasped the reality. Sin is your problem, my problem, our problem. It's not just sin out there, it's sin in here. If we were to ask God to remove all the evil in this world, he'd have to remove us because we're evil at heart. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God supply the needs of his children? But he understood, and we must understand, that our heart is evil. So it's your problem, it's my problem, it's our problem, it's the problem of the human race, and that's a big deal when we understand the magnitude of the crime called sin. Only then will we appreciate the remedy. If you have five pills that you can give to someone that will cure any kind of disease they might have, they must first understand the disease they have and the drastic element of what that disease might do in their body, or else they're not interested in your five pills. Tell them what their problem is, reveal to them what their problem is, and say, it's hopeless without these pills. Then they're more inclined to grab hold of it. I must have it, I must have it. I came across an illustration some time back that is so helpful regarding this. If I take a key out of my pocket and use it to scratch a rock found by the roadside, I've actually broken no law and will not face any consequences. If I go to an abandoned car dump site and take my key and scratched a trashed car there, people might say, hey, what are you doing? But that's about it. If I go to a used car lot and use the key to scratch a used car, now I'm guilty of a criminal offense. But if I go to a Ferrari car lot and take the same key and scratch a brand new Ferrari, my punishment will now be way bigger because my guilt is intensified. Because my guilt is intensified, so is the punishment I will face. Why? Because of the value of the thing I sinned against. The value of the thing I scratched. A rock? Not so much. A Ferrari? Now you're in trouble. Here's the big deal. God is infinitely holy, infinitely valuable. There's actually no way to convey in human language the worth and the value of this infinite God. Therefore, any sin against an infinite God carries with it infinite punishment. That's why, that's why the value of Christ's atoning work for us on the cross, Him dying for our sins, is of infinite value. In the gospel, believe it or not, God saves us. I wonder how you'd answer this sentence. God saves us from God. You see, when God punishes sin, which is the only rightful thing for a holy and righteous God to do, when He does that, He saves us. When He saves us from that judgment, He saves us from His wrath. Not the devil's, not someone else's. The concept of the Bible is the wrath of God. But here's the good news. Christ died for our sins. I remember it was around 40 years ago I was thinking about it this week, how long ago it was. Forty years ago, I heard a cassette tape, which ages me. It was of a preacher who was describing something called the divine exchange. And there he laid out the fact that Jesus on the cross died as our substitute, vicariously, in our place. He also had lived a life of holiness, vicariously, in our place. You see... What happened 
In creation, when God made man, he formed man of the dust of the ground. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. It's like this overflow of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's overflow and create man in our image and our likeness. What an amazing relationship there was between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pure, holy, undefiled fathomless. Let us explode into joy in creation and create a place for man and man himself. Man was formed from the dust of the ground and the first man was called Adam. And Adam had the responsibility of obeying the law of God, which was only one. You can eat any fruit of any tree in the garden, but there's one you shall not eat and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The fruit that was forbidden. And of course we know the story. He with Eve ate and plunged not only himself but all who would come after him into utter ruin. Death came as a result. And we know this, don't we? We can watch the nature programs and uh, my wife and I enjoy watching nature programs whether they are describing uh, the view on land or even the view in the sea. And there is this wonderful animal just rejoicing, tripping around, dancing around, and suddenly you see it get eaten. And you think, what? And what? What? And then they just go on to the next scene. And we understand that this world is not a perfect place. There are things that are wonderful and there are things that are tragic and things that are just hard to get over. We live in a very fallen world and the Bible tells us why. Man sinned. Some people think that the reaction of God to that sin was an overreaction, but such is to demonstrate, should you think that, should people think that, that you've not understood the severity of sin. And I've tried to describe the awesomeness of sin to reveal the awesomeness of what God did for sinners. Here's what we understand and what I understood in that cassette tape message. The punishment due to us came upon Christ that the good due to Christ might be made available to us. He was punished so that we could be forgiven. Jesus lived the only righteous life ever lived fulfilling all the demands of God's law. Never did God ever say, well, you shouldn't have done that, my son. No, whenever there was a question, God bellowed out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He lived a righteous life. I couldn't ask friends of mine to come and ask them this question, which of you convicts me of sin? Because all of them would say, I can, I can, I can. I see blemishes. I see things that are not what they should be. They'd be around me long enough. But Jesus was not only able to do that with friends, but to his enemies said, which of you convicts me of sin? He was sinless. He was perfect. He lived this perfect life before his Father. And there on the cross, he went there for us to glorify his Father and to save us. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, these remarkable words, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the time of Christ. That's an amazing mouthful right there. 700 years before it happened, it was prophesied these words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Paul does as we encounter this passage before us is to write of him dying for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, the Old Testament, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he goes on to describe the appearances of Jesus to his twelve. Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, more than 500 brothers at one time. And so he stresses the burial of Christ. And the burial, what's what's the significance of that? Well, 
you bury dead people normally, and it was a, a demonstration of the fact that he had, had actually died. He was buried and then rose again. And what happens in the rest of this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, is Paul deals with the resurrection of Christ and its ramifications. Many of you in this room are old enough to remember President Ronald Reagan. People in this room remember both him and his presidency. Imagine someone writing a book about him, writing a biography and saying, Ronald Reagan walked on water. Now, some people think he did, but he calmed storms with just a word. He turned water into wine. I remember when 5,000 men, plus women and children, were fed miraculously. When Ronald Reagan divided up the bread, um, got a problem yet. Uh, yeah, and after death, uh, Ronald Reagan rose from the dead, appeared to his closest allies, and 500 people, many of whom were still alive, could be interviewed. Um, I think there are people in this room, if someone wrote that kind of thing and then went on the TV circuit saying, I'm promoting my book about Ronald Reagan, and it was a book that contained these things, we'd say, wait a minute, what, 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 wait a minute. Ronald Reagan didn't do any of those things. Do you know that's what's in view here? It's about 25 years after the death of Christ that Paul is writing these words. And the Gospels were written between about 30 and 40 years after the death of Christ. That's about the length of time between Ronald Reagan and us in our day. And there would be people around saying, you're saying, Gospel writers, that Jesus turned water into wine and walked on water and healed the sick and raised the dead. Sorry, but none of that happened. But to prove it was true, Paul could appeal to 500 that most, many of them are still alive, who had witnessed the things of Jesus and said basically by that statement, go ask them, they're still alive. Do some interviews if you need to. But you know this was true. There was no, wait a minute. There was no pouring out of, that's not true. You see, if you're going to start a religion and what your basis premise, basic premise is, is false, and Jesus died in Jerusalem and never rose from the dead, you would not start that religion in Jerusalem. You'd go to Seattle, Washington. You'd go far, far away. You'd say, no, there's, there's people that, that... I need to start this thing where people don't know anything. On the day of Pentecost, Peter could stand up in Acts 2 and say, you crucified him and you know God raised him from the dead. That's in Jerusalem, folks. The place where Jesus died. There was no wait a minute moment. That's what Paul does here. And he informs us of the, of the cosmic ramifications of Christ's resurrection, starting with Adam. He goes through the fact that if Christ isn't raised, you've got a dead Savior, and a dead Savior can't save anyone. But he goes on, and that's where we normally go, especially on Resurrection Sunday. We talk about the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. He's alive. What a Savior. He died in our place. He was buried in our place. He rose in our place. And He's now seated at the place of all authority. And anyone who believes in Him, anyone who repents and believes this gospel is saved. What a message. What a gospel. But where Paul goes after these opening 20 verses or so is to an unusual place. He goes back to the beginning. And he goes back to Adam. In Romans chapter 5, he does the same and says that Adam's sin affected not only Adam, but all the human race. And Christ's work, his life and his death for us, if we receive it, has ramifications. We're saved by what he did for us in our place. Look at verse 21. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, all those who are in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, notice this phrase, the first fruits, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
So what Paul does is he goes back to Adam and he says, just as Adam and his sin had consequences for the whole human race, and if you're born in just a natural way, you are born in the likeness of Adam. He is your head spiritually. And the consequence of that is that you are dead spiritually. You are not alive towards God. All those in Adam are born DOA, dead on arrival. And that's why we need life, new life, spiritual life. The Bible calls it being born again, born from above, having a second birth where our heart becomes alive to God, to Him and the things of God. Has that happened to you? Have you come alive spiritually? Are you understanding that you want Christ without that operation in the heart? You will want perhaps religion, maybe, maybe not. But what you won't want is Christ. God has to give you a heart. I trust as you hear of the treasure and worth of Christ today that God will change your heart and give you a new one if that's the heart condition. But what Paul then does is goes through the ramifications cosmically of what Jesus' death has done not only for Christians who believe but for the entire human race. And it relates to a theme called the resurrection of the body. I believe in the resurrection of the body. See, Christianity at this point is in total contrast with other religions. The Greeks, for example, have the idea, as they did in history, that matter, anything you can see, is evil. And that which is spiritual, and only spiritual, is good. Matter is evil. Spiritual things, that's what is good. And so they think the great quest of the soul is to leave the physical body, to not be intimidated or affected at all by the physical body, but get out of your body and have an experience. Or else be free from the clutches and the prison of what your physical body is. That's the exact opposite of what we find in our Bible. The Bible is much to say about the physical body. And here's the, mo the moment that you've been waiting for when you start reading your Bible. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God became a man. God took the form of a man, a real man. He was a real man. He was truly God and truly man. What a miracle. Here it is. God made man in his image. Man, the violator of God, committed cosmic treason, but God's love still pervaded. And he sent his son into the world, the second person of the Trinity, to become a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. The Greeks couldn't accept this, and so they had the idea. In fact, it was something that became something called Gnosticism. And that's the idea that Jesus, though He came, He didn't come in the flesh. 1 John is all about that. Who's the spirit of Antichrist? He who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Their idea was he only seemed to be human because he wouldn't become human because it would be evil for God to take a physical body. There was nothing in the Bible that presented that view. It's their Greek way of thinking that made them think Jesus only appeared to be human. But the message of the Bible is, no, he actually became a man in all that that means, all it designates. It was unthinkable for deity to take the form of a human body. He could only appear to be flesh. If Jesus was walking on the beach and you were walking with him, there'd only be one set of footprints, yours, because he wasn't really a man. That was the idea. It's a heresy, but that was the idea all around the early Christians. But the Word became flesh. But I want to go further today because our text goes further. And I want to talk about this resurrection of the body. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. He walked, He talked, He ate. 
And he taught. In fact, let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, back to the left, past Romans to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Luke is the writer, as, is, as he is for the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And how he starts is in this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I love that because Luke is writing after the resurrection of Jesus and said, my first, my first gospel, the first thing I wrote, the first book was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication? He's still doing. He's still teaching. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he sat around with people after his resurrection and taught. He ate with them. He walked with them. And Jesus is alive and Jesus is still doing. Now he had, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he had appeared to Paul. He mentions that in the early verses. Paul outlines that in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 26. He revealed himself to Paul. Paul being a persecutor of the church. And Jesus knocked him off his high horse. Revealed himself. Who are you, Lord? I know what you are. I know you're Lord. But who are you? I've got a sneaking feeling I know who you are. And he says, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And that was his testimony. He went from this persecutor of the church, and he's now writing 1 Corinthians, and is willing to die for the resurrected Savior. It's amazing. Ah, not so fast. Some people object and say, look, uh, these guys just made the whole thing up. Think about that. The resurrection, they made it up. Let, let, you see, if it was true, they knew it was true. And if it was false, they knew it was false. They knew it was a false message. They knew Jesus hadn't really raised from the dead, but let's get something going. Let's get a religion going. Well, first of all, their master had been nailed to a tree. It didn't look good for them in the early days either when they started pre preaching the same message. They were arrested immediately. But they've, you know, the objection is often raised. Look, 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 look. Many have died for lies. That's a true statement. People have flown planes into buildings for Allah. And that was a lie. They believed a lie. But here's the difference between that and what's happening here. Those who flew planes into buildings thought what they believed was true. Now, psychologically, no sane person would die for what they knew to be a lie. Some people might be stubborn, but 11 out of the 12... Do you know 11 out of the 12 apostles died as martyrs? Only John lived to old age. I was once preaching in India. I've preached there four different times. I was preaching in a church on a Sunday called the Church of Matama. I thought no more of it. It was just an Indian-sounding name to me. And uh, after the service, I was having lunch with the pastor and asked, how, how long has this church been going? It was a very foolish question. Because he said, we're the church of Matama. I said, yes, yes, yes. How, how long has this church been going? He said, we are the church of Matama. And that didn't make much sense. And then he explained, Matama is our Indian way of saying Thomas. We're the church of Thomas. This church was founded by the apostle Thomas. Oh. Um. As you study church history, tradition is that Thomas, the one who said, unless I see, unless I feel, I will not believe. Do you know what? He died as a martyr for the resurrected Savior. That's the end of the story. We, be, we read the beginning of the story in the Gospels. Yeah, he, he wasn't that great right there, but he ended up great. And he started churches in India and died for the faith he once questioned. 
You see, at any point, these apostles could say, look, you've got a sword over me. All they have to do is say, okay, we made it up. Can I live? None of them did it. Because they knew it was true. They knew it was true. Paul was a persecutor of the church and was willing to be flogged, was many times, because Christ, it did indeed, appear to him. What a radical change. The apostles, as you remember, after the cross were scattered and fearful and in hiding until they saw him after the resurrection. Now they were bold. Now they were faithful unto death. Look at verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Turn to the right. I've asked you to turn to the left. Now turn to the right in your Bibles to Philippians. You'll find 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. We could say flip to Philippians. <laughs> Chapter 3, look at verse 20. As it is, my eager... Excuse me, I'm in chapter 1. I'm getting blessed over there, but you're over in chapter 3. I need to come up and find you. Here we go. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior. Do you realize Jesus Christ has not only come, but he's promised to come again? From heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Look what he will do. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You read that and you go on to chapter 4, but do you realize the ramifications of that? He's going to transform our bodies, not give us life without our bodies, as the Greeks might think would be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. No, you're going to have a new body, a glorious body. It's going to be like his. After the resurrection, Jesus had a glorious body, and that's the kind of body we will have. How will he do it? By the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Now think of the ramifications of that. Many people in human history have been burnt in fires. They are but dust. Some lost at sea have been eaten by who knows what. How can God resurrect the body? God can handle that. God can handle that. He can trace all the elements of our physical bodies put them all together and say, there, there is Philip P. Barnes right there. He can do it. And he will. On to verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it goes on. Regarding this, William Bukestein writes this. For a seed to become a new plant, it must not remain as a seed. It must decay and undergo a change in its attributes. In the same way, for a human body to become something new, it must not remain as it is. In the ordinary case, the body must die. It must be planted in the ground and decay. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind a seed its own body. Again, to quote Bukestein, Paul writes, to each seed its own body, verse 38. The body, hear this, the body planted in the ground at death is like a seed. The fully mature flowering tree realized that the resurrection will be in every way superior to the seed but it will be identifiably based on the template of the original body. I think that's a helpful comment. Then he goes on. A corn seed does not yield an oak tree. Christ's empty grave indicates the, to quote Voss, a theologian, substantial identity between his body that was buried and his resurrection body. All right, let's put it in terms we can understand. 
People ask, will we know one another in heaven? My answer is, will we know one another if we met in Dallas? You see, Dallas is a place and heaven is a place. A real place. And you will have a physical body. It will be marvelously altered. But it will be you and we will recognize you. Oh, there's Stacy, I remember. Wow, you're looking good. <laughs> Sometimes you're in your early teens, late teens, early 20s, and you look in the mirror and you say, yeah, we got it. Hey, we just happen to have it, right? Yeah. And then when you get up, 40, 50 and onwards, you look in the mirror and you say, is it animal, vegetable or mineral? <laughs> Our bodies are decaying, have you noticed? And they will go to the ground, but God will raise our bodies to li- our bodies to life. There's a continuity between your body now and your body then. You say, "Well, I don't like my nose." Well, maybe you get another nose. I don't know, but you will still look great. Look at verse forty-two. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. See, that's where he's going. Jesus' resurrection from death proves the Christian faith is true, but that's not all. that's, That's something, that's a big thing, but it's not the only thing. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What dies and goes to the ground, the body, is perishable. You all know what a perishable item is. Put things in the refrigerator to slow the perishing down, but eventually that thing's going to perish. What we need is imperishable. And what is raised is imperishable. You see, Jesus Christ has a resurrection body that is not undergoing any kind of decay. And that's the kind of body you will have. It is sown in dishonor. Yeah, we don't look that good when we die. I've never been to a funeral home, seen a body and say, whoa, are they looking good? dishonor, but it's raised in glory. What is the body? It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised, what is raised? The body. A spiritual body. There's an element that is related to the first, but it's definitely a second. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just look at this. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We shall not all sleep. There will be a generation when Jesus Christ comes back and that changes everything. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's less time than it takes for an eye to blink. That's merely the time it takes for light to reflect on the human eye. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For what's he talking about? He's talking about the body. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? You're going to get a better body. One that lasts, imperishable. There's going to be no more corruption, no more decay, no more disappointment looking in the mirror. We shall be changed. What a difference. You see, the Christian message in Christ and His resurrection is this changes everything. It doesn't just change Christians. It it changes the cosmos. 
you're going to have a fully embodied life in the eternal state. You're going to have it with your body. Your soul and your body will be one, united. Here's a quote. God's promise of eternal fellowship is made to humans, not merely to souls. The deep desire of humanity and the culmination of God's promise is to commune with God to the fullest capacity of our humanity. The fulfillment of this power requires resurrected bodies. But I'm not done. It's not only Christians who'll be raised. Everyone will be raised. All will be raised with their bodies. Now hear this from Matthew 10. Jesus' words. If it wasn't Jesus, we'd say, oh, that's just Paul or Peter. This is Jesus. He said this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Not just soul, but soul and body. Here's the amazing fact of Christ's resurrection. No one, in a future moment in history, no one will be held in death's clutches. Think of that. Think, think of a mighty big hand. The owner of the hand is given a personal name, death, and all are held in its grip. Think of human history. Not many people who entered the grip of death ever got out. There were a few. There were people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The apostles raised people from the dead, but only a few. And if you remember, a few years later, they would crawl back into death's grip. They would die again, and they would be in the clutches of death. So if death was a person, he would say, well, I lost him, I lost him. Oh, oh, he's back. And everyone is in the clutch of death. The Bible says this, it's appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. Think of that. People were raised, they died, and stayed dead. Most. So they were raised. Some, very, very few, were raised, but they succumbed to death's power once again. They died and stayed dead. But here's the message. Are you ready? Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of of those who are asleep. Do you remember that phrase? And that's why we're going to be able to say, death, there's no sting for you. And you know what? We can say it now. Death is perceived in the Bible as an enemy, not a friend. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed, destroyed, destroyed is death. Death will be destroyed. So Christ, when he comes again, will open up the horrible hand of death. And everyone in its clutches will be liberated. No one, no one will be under death's power. Jesus conquered death, but not just for himself. He did it for us, Christians. He also did it for all humanity. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator. And we mess things up and he put everything back and will put everything back forever in its rightful place. And he will undo the fall all the ramifications of the curse, death will be destroyed. He conquered as the first fruits. The ramifications of the death of Christ is cosmic. There will be a day when no one will be without their physical body. 
That's not all good news because some will be raised in physical bodies to await the judgment of God for their sin. And some will be raised for eternal life with their bodies. And where Paul goes is to say in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the obvious answer is, you don't have any victory. Christ is victorious over you. You have no sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin in the law. And Jesus has abolished all of that. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And look where he goes, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Christians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's where he goes. You've got meaningful work now, meaningful labor. All can be done for the glory of God. But there is a day when we will face the judgment of God in our bodies. And you may think, well, I don't want that. Think about that when you say, I don't want judgment. You see, we say all those kind of things until we see a serial rapist or a serial murderer and they're convicted, they're found guilty. No one at that point says to the judge, don't judge. No, there's something that rises up within us. Justice must be done. And here's the amazing thing, justice will be done. Our sin was either nailed to the cross of Jesus or else we will bear the punishment for that sin forever in a place called hell. But no one's going to be left in death. All will be raised, some to life, some to eternal torment. Where will you be? You and I have heard the wonderful gospel today. And it comes first with the recognition of the bad news. Unless we understand our sin, we'll not appreciate a savior. God didn't send a committee. God didn't send an education team. God didn't send a poet. God didn't send an entertainer. God sent a savior because that was our greatest and our most desperate need. The son of God became the son of man that the sons of men might become the sons of God. At the cross, this Lord Jesus, if we saw him on the cross, if we were down beneath the cross, we would, would we have seen the cosmic event that was taking place? I'm not sure we would, unless God gives us spiritual sight to see. God was doing business with his son, and in a real way, he said, all right, lights go off, and the darkness came for those three hours where the father and the son did business. The Father laid on the Son the iniquity of all God's people and he bore their punishment. Didn't need to, was already right with God forever, was the perfect lamb. But he hung there. Some were shouting out, save yourself! If you are who you said you are, if you are the Son of God, a young Billy Graham said this, they may have believed in him if he came down. We believe in him because he stayed up. He hung there for love for his father and for you. Love for his sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. What have you done with him? This Lord Jesus is risen from the dead and has defeated death as the first fruit for everybody else. And one day all will be raised in resurrection power. He's got enough power to do that. He could stand at the tomb of Lazarus and says, come out. He came out. No cooperation needed. He was dead. There wasn't any possibility of cooperation. The power of his word. And that's the one who's in charge of this universe. You, when you understand your Bible, can never put Jesus on the same level with any other human being. He's the God-man. He's the word made flesh. He's the creator become the savior. One day he's coming back and death will be no more. I invite you. In fact, let me correct myself. It is an invitation to come to Christ. I invite you to come, but biblically it's a command. God commands all people to repent. Acts chapter 17. 
Let me close with that. Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, wrote these words. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's they, mankind, should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he himself is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. What has God done for me lately? He's holding your brain cells together as you defy him. That's what he's doing. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked. Now look at this, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we've heard it today, may it be that those under the sound of my voice would know you in truth and repent and believe the good news. Come under the canopy of the Savior. Say, I am a sinner. I need you. I repent. I turn away from all I know to be wrong and I turn to you. I believe in you. My trust is in you. My trust is in you alone that they may be saved. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.